Section 18 of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9. St. Anne's Hill. Part 1. Among the many disappointments of Fox's life, there was none which touched him more poignantly than the difference which sprung up between himself and the older Whigs on the subject of the French Revolution wonderful as were his spirits he was too warm-hearted not to feel deeply his separation from old friends such as elliot and thomas grenville too sensitive not to understand the grave rebuke conveyed by the withdrawal of the duke of portland and lord fitzwilliam a whig party which no longer numbered in its ranks the cavendishes and the bentinks and the wentworths seemed indeed in the eyes of a politician of the eighteenth century to be but a maimed and mutilated trunk on the ninth of march seventeen ninety four fox writes sorrowfully to his nephew on the subject you will easily imagine how much i felt the separation from persons with whom i had so long been in the habit of agreeing it seemed some way as if i had the world to begin anew and if i could have done it with honour what i should best have liked would have been to retire from politics altogether but this could not be done, and there remains nothing but to get together the remains of our party, and begin like Sisyphus to roll the stone up again, which long before it reaches the summit may probably roll down again. In the August of the same year he breaks out with still greater pathos. I have nothing to say for my old friends, nor indeed as politicians have they any right to any tenderness from me, but i cannot forget how long i have lived in friendship with them nor can i avoid feeling the most severe mortification when i recollect the certainty i used to entertain that they never would disgrace themselves as i think they have done i cannot forget that ever since i was a child fitzwilliam has been in all situations my warmest and most affectionate friend and the person in the world of whom decidedly i have the best opinion and so in most respects I have still. But as a politician I cannot reconcile his conduct with what I, who have known him for more than five and thirty years, have always thought to be his character. There is a sentiment of Lord Rochester that I have always much admired, and which I feel the truth of very forcibly upon this occasion. It is this. To be ill-used by those on whom we have bestowed favours is so much in the course of things and ingratitude is so common that a wise man can feel neither much surprise nor pain when he experiences it but to be ill-used by those to whom we owe obligations which we never can forget and towards whom we must continue to feel affection and gratitude is indeed a most painful sensation i think they have all behaved very ill to me and for most of them who certainly owe much more to me than i do to them I feel nothing but contempt, and I do not trouble myself about them. But Fitzwilliam is an exception indeed, and to my feelings for him everything Lord Rochester says applies very strongly indeed. I hope you will come home soon. It will make amends to me for everything, and make me feel alive again about politics, which I am now quite sick of, and only attend to because I think it is a duty to do so, and feel that it would be unbecoming my character to quit them at this moment it is clear from the letters which contain his most private thoughts 
that fox was utterly dispirited by the schism of seventeen ninety three and only persevered in the uphill fight because he believed it was his duty to his country to do so but the struggle though manfully maintained grew year by year more distasteful his heart was ever at st anne's hill when his bodily presence was at westminster here we are in this cursed place he begins one letter from the manager's box in westminster hall very different from st anne's place or from tivoli where perhaps you now are throughout the years seventeen ninety three to ninety four his mind evidently recurred again and again to the discarded plan of seventeen eighty four and he positively longed to find an argument which would justify to his conscience a withdrawal from the regular attendance in parliament in seventeen ninety five he discusses the question in a letter to lord holland but most reluctantly decides that to quit public office would be too open to the misconception that having lost all hope of place we left the country to take care of itself i am so sure that secession is the measure a shabby fellow would take in our circumstances that i think it can hardly be right for us but as for wishes no man ever wished anything more as the years passed on and the policy of the ministry seemed to become more and more obstructive and tyrannical and their position more and more assured the cry for a secession from parliament began to make itself heard amongst most of the opposition leaders gray impulsive and irritable was anxious for it erskine and the duke of bedford were willing to try it and fox on personal grounds longed for it but could not disabuse his mind of the idea that it was ill-advised he acquiesced in it says lord holland more from indolence than from judgment eventually a meeting was held in seventeen ninety seven at which all the chiefs of the opposition were present and it was agreed by all except sheridan and tierney to leave parliament if gray's motion for reform was thrown out fox was anxious that too much importance should not be attributed to the step in the house he only spoke of devoting a larger portion of his time to his literary pursuits and in a letter to lord holland he wrote pray if you have an opportunity of talking about the secession say what is the truth that there was not agreement of opinion enough upon the subject to make it possible to take what one might call a measure upon the subject but that most of us thought that after the proposition for reform we might fairly enough stay away considering the preceding events of the session and the behaviour of parliament upon them fox had warned his friends that if he once left parliament it would be very difficult to get him back again and so it proved from may twenty sixth seventeen ninety seven the day of gray's motion to march third eighteen o six the day on which he received office in the ministry of all the talents he only addressed the house nineteen times while before the secession he had usually spoken more than that number of times in one year there were indeed many reasons why he should prefer the quiet seclusion and lettered ease of st anne's to the turmoil of st stephen's he was now getting well into middle age had outgrown the passions and the excitement of youth and was beginning to long for the full enjoyment of domestic peace congenial to his time of life his marriage with mrs armistead in seventeen ninety five had hallowed a love in which for many years he had found his chief delight 
his letters are full of the most natural and tender allusion to her which could only spring from the realization through her of unalloyed domestic happiness if there ever was a place which might be called the seat of true happiness he writes in seventeen ninety four st anne's is that place and again in seventeen ninety five i am perfectly happy in the country i have quite resources enough to employ my mind and the great resource of all literature i am fonder of every day and then the lady of the hill is one continual source of happiness to me i believe few men indeed ever were so happy in that respect as i and in another letter i declare i think my affection for her increases every day she is a comfort to me in every misfortune and makes me to enjoy doubly every circumstance of life there is to me a charm and a delight in her society which time does not in the least wear off and for real goodness of heart if she ever had her equal she certainly never had a superior besides his delight in his domestic life his private affairs made fox anxious if possible to avoid the expense of a house in london owing to the recklessness of his youth and his natural indolence about money matters he had always been in embarrassed circumstances and usually owed a good deal of money to his friends in seventeen eighty seven he was as much as five thousand pounds in debt to coutts the banker but in seventeen ninety three by the exertions of his political friends a sum was raised sufficient to clear him from debt and to purchase an annuity for him naturally therefore he was anxious not to get into embarrassments again and exercised for the rest of his life the strictest economy in order to live within his means attracted by the pleasures of home and urged by the dictates of economy fox found another inducement to leave public life in the virulence of the attacks made upon him by the tory press no man however even spirited can be wholly unaffected by continuous abuse and fox must have been all the more sensitive to the attacks made upon him because unscrupulous as they were in their misrepresentation many of them had some colour of excuse in his own folly after the outbreak of the war fox was one of the best abused men in england he was looked upon by a large section of the community as unpatriotic and untrustworthy little better than a traitor in gilray's caricatures he figures as the leading member of the party who were conspiring with the french to overthrow the constitution of england and establish in its place a republic on the french model with the unerring instinct on such matters which is the life-blood of the caricaturist fox is always the central figure the head and front of the offending sheridan is the faithful henchman when anything more than usually extravagant is to be done but he always plays a subordinate often a mean part stanhope erskine gray fill up the picture but it is upon fox that attention is concentrated it is he that is held up to the scorn and the hatred of patriots it is he who is depicted as the arch-enemy of his country to be caricatured by gilray was a very different matter to an appearance in the pages of mr punch there is nothing of wit of banter of good temper 
seldom even anything of the ludicrous in the acrid work of gilray the blows he directs were straight from the shoulder deliberately brutal in conception intended to inspire hatred and to destroy reputation we are so accustomed to the delicate handling of political caricature by mr punch to look under his guidance at the ludicrous side of serious politics and to enjoy a laugh at the expense of both our friends and foes that we are apt to forget what a terrible engine of misrepresentation and calumny political caricatures may become if meant to hurt and not to amuse gilray is not the predecessor of leech and Tenniel. he is the successor of hogarth a satirist of the school of churchill whose satires were all the more powerful because they were conveyed in pictures and required no intellectual effort to be understood the popular idea of fox is to this day largely formed upon a vague remembrance of gilray's caricatures we know him so well as guy fox just about to apply the torch of the rights of man to the gunpowder which was to blow up the king and house of lords when arrested by the searching gleam of burke's lantern or acting as headsman with a mask on his face at the execution of george the third while sheridan holds the king's head steady for the stroke of the axe or presenting the head of pitt as the choice dish to be set before the demon of revolution after the war broke out the satire grew more virulent than ever fox was depicted at the night signal set up to draw the french fleet to the sack of london as the agent of the french smuggling provisions over to france and so causing a famine in england as the devotee before the images of robespierre and bonaparte at the shrine of st anne's hill as the french brigand soldier giving the death-stroke to the king lords and commons he was as all his speeches show exceedingly sensitive about the charge of holding republican sentiments it was that more than anything else which goaded him on to the quarrel with burke after the quarrel he took great pains to explain the importance he attached to an aristocracy and to announce his belief that no government could be a fit one for british subjects to live under which did not contain its due weight of aristocracy as the proper poise of the constitution he had in fact an immense almost superstitious love for the british constitution with its system of checks and balances with its due proportion of monarchical aristocratical and popular elements it was of course not to be a fixed and stereotyped constitution the relations between the different elements required continual adjustment it was always most necessary to take care that the popular element was not unduly suppressed and the monarchical unduly prominent it was to represent the whole nation and not only certain sections of the nation but advocacy of a republic as even the ideally best form of government was wholly foreign to his mind he had no sympathy whatever with the doctrines that the uneducated masses were collectively wiser than the educated few or that universal suffrage flowed necessarily from the rights of man the fact was that he was so delighted at the overthrow of the ancien regime that he did not scan narrowly the principle upon which that overthrow proceeded when enunciated in the vague form of abstract principles such as liberty equality fraternity 
the rights of man the sovereignty of the people he always found himself perfectly able to put an interpretation upon them absolutely consistent with his political creed when different interpretations were put upon them in france he lamented them as momentary aberrations or justified them on the general ground of the liberty which must always be accorded to a nation to be allowed to know what is best for itself he never grappled with the question whether there was not really a fundamental difference between the english and the french theory of liberty and whether a democratic republic was not the only political organization which fully expressed the french theory in answer to burke's strictures upon the rights of man and the sovereignty of the people he said that to attack them was to attack the british constitution for since the hanoverian succession the british constitution had depended upon the rights of men and the sovereignty of the people an answer like that was possible in seventeen ninety one if the new constitution in france might be taken as an honest attempt to secure parliamentary government with a constitutional king and a constitutional church it was not possible as a justification of the formula in seventeen ninety eight after jacobinism had in its name and under its authority swept away the crown and the church and established universal suffrage yet after the duke of norfolk had been dismissed from his lord lieutenancy for giving the toast of the people our sovereign at a complimentary dinner fox did not hesitate to go down to the whig club a few nights later and propose the same toast justifying it on the ground that george the third owed his crown to the will of the people to claim that a constitutional meaning might be placed on the formula at a moment when in the minds of every one in europe it had become associated with the jacobin principle of democracy was either elaborately trifling or criminally folly it was inevitable that men should take fox at his word judge of his opinions by the ordinary meaning of the words he used and put him down as a republican since he chose to use and go out of his way to justify republican sentiments it was not to be wondered at if political opponents hurled at him the charge of unpatriotic conduct and pictured him in league with england's enemies there was truth in the charge as the war went on ruinous and criminal as it was in his opinion he wrote and he acted as no true patriot in a crisis of his country's fate should write or act the duke of bedford a staunch opponent of the war subscribed one hundred thousand pounds to the patriotic loan in seventeen ninety six fox on the other hand took advantage of the mutiny at the nore to embarrass the ministers as in the american war he had rejoiced over saratoga and yorktown so now he rejoiced over french victories in eighteen o one he writes to gray who had remonstrated with him the truth is i am gone something further in hate to the english government than perhaps you and the rest of my friends are and certainly further than can with prudence be avowed the triumph of the french government over the english does in fact afford me a degree of pleasure which is very difficult to disguise when fox was a young man it happened that a criminal bearing exactly the same name was hanged george selwyn who was a great friend of his and had a passion for attending executions 
was asked if he had been to the hanging of Fox. No, said Selwyn, I make a point of never attending rehearsals. The prophecy of the joke did not remain wholly unfulfilled. For more than ten years, Fox was looked upon by the majority of Englishmen as a criminal and a traitor at heart. Gilray drew a sketch to show that there was no hope for England until his head was treated French fashion as the ornament for the top of a pike. His own indiscretion in conversation and letters deepened the general conviction. It was not to be wondered at, therefore, that he fled from Parliament and politics when the opportunity came, with the zest of a schoolboy flying from school. End of section 18